coming up on this week's episode of The Doctor's Pharmacy. Policymakers need to help Americans uh, make the healthy choice the easy choice. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Mark Hyman. So whenever I talk to my patients about going gluten-free, their first complaint is giving up pasta. Now, I love pasta, you love pasta, we all love pasta. But going gluten-free and even eating grain-free and low-carb doesn't have to mean missing pasta thanks to something called Wonder Noodles from Thrive Market. Now, Wonder Noodles are also known as shirataki noodles and have been used for centuries in Asian cooking. They're made from a root called cognac root, a cognac yam, and they contain glucomannan, which is actually a very powerful soluble fiber. It's been proven to lower blood sugar, to lower cholesterol, to actually help with weight loss and also feed all the good bugs in your gut that helps keep your microbiome healthy and you healthy. And because Wonder Noodles are made from this fiber, they're extremely low calorie. I think there's actually no calories in them and they're very low carb because there's no carbs in them. It's all fiber. So Thrive Market Wonder Noodles come in multiple forms. There's spaghetti, there's fettuccine, my favorite angel hair pasta. They take on whatever flavor you want. So honestly, they can be used in any dish. And one of my favorite ways to prepare them is with a coconut curry sauce with grilled veggies. I just, it's so delicious, really. And you don't feel like you're missing out on the pasta and the noodles. And with Thrive Market, you can get Wonder Noodles delivered right to your doorstep so that your pantry is always fully stocked. So not only does Thrive Market offer 25 to 50% off all of my favorite brands, but they also give back. For every membership purchase, they give a membership to a family in need and they make it easy to find the right membership for you and your family. You can choose from a one month, three month, or 12 month plan. I go with the 12 month because it only adds up to $5 a month and I save hundreds on my grocery bill throughout the year. And right now, Thrive is offering all Doctors Pharmacy listeners a great deal. You'll get up to $20 in shopping credit when you sign up to spend on all your own favorite natural food, body, and household items. And anytime you spend more than $49, you get free carbon neutral shipping. All you have to do is head over to thrivemarket.com forward slash hymen. That's thrivemarket.com forward slash hymen. I think you're going to love them as much as I do. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor and be an investor in their company. All right, let's get back to the episode. Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman. That's pharmacy with an F, F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. And today's conversation I think will matter if you care about your health, the health of our country, and trying to find solutions to our chronic disease epidemic that's crippling everyone in this society in one way or another, whether it's someone you love or yourself or economy or just all the crazy crises of health that we have in this world today that we really find are mostly unnecessary because we can prevent them. And that's why I've invited Dr. Anand Parekh, who's an extraordinary physician. He's the chief medical advisor for the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a group of policymakers, physicians, scientists come together to solve difficult problems around health in the country. It's pretty extraordinary and many other issues. He's provided incredible support to our nation through his work in the government. He's uh, basically been focused on work uh, that he did through his decade of service at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, he was the deputy 
Assistant Secretary for Health from 2008 to 2015. He developed and implemented national initiatives on prevention, wellness, and care management. At the BPC now, he's focused in areas of aging, prevention, and global health. Uh, he's really an important figure in our country and trying to think differently about how we solve our big chronic health issues. He's a board-certified internal medicine doctor. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians. He's an adjunct professor of health management and policy at the University of Michigan School of Public Health and adjunct professor, assistant professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins. Uh, he's spoken widely and extensively and written a lot about topics on health, including his new book, Prevention First, Policymaking for a Healthy America, published by Johns Hopkins Press, which is an amazing book. I read it. It's a little dense, but it is full of the solutions that we need to solve our chronic disease crisis. All right, welcome, Dr. Thank you, Dr. Hyman. Great to be on the podcast with you. So we met a number of years ago when I came to Washington. I was at Human Health and Human Services advocating for lifestyle interventions for uh, chronic disease as treatment. And uh, I went around and met with many um, leaders in healthcare at the time, the head of the Senate Committee, Congress, uh, Secretary Sibelius, Nancy Indeparle in the White House, trying to advocate for a simple idea, which is we could take these patients with chronic disease and use aggressive lifestyle interventions in groups to help them transform their health and get better. And everybody was 100% on board and nobody wanted to vote against it, but it ended up on the cutting room floor in the Affordable Care Act because uh, there was all the backroom horse trading that I think that happened. But everybody was on board with the idea because they realized that we really have this global crisis and in America, we're leading in that global crisis. Um, You know, we have the best trained doctors in the world. We have the best hospitals. We have the best technology. We have the most cutting edge treatments and drugs for a whole multitude of problems. Patients come from all over the world to get healthcare here. But on the other hand, our own citizens are pretty unhealthy. In fact, we have pretty crappy life expectancy. I think we're 43rd in the world, yet we spend more than twice any other nation on healthcare. Uh, We have, so services aren't guaranteed to everybody. We have uneven quality of care. We have health disparities. Uh, and we're lagging behind almost every other country in health metrics, including infant mortality, life expectancy. Um, how come? It's <laughs> uh, a great question. Uh, a, a lot of, uh, I think, important reasons for that. Um, I think you're absolutely right. There are significant uh, disparities uh, in the United States, and I think that that's one of the reasons why why we're different. Just take income. If you compare life expectancy of the of the top one percent wealthiest Americans, you compare it to the one uh, percent poorest Americans, there's a fourteen year life expectancy difference for men and a ten year life expectancy difference for women. So income matters. Take race, though infant mortality has has gone down in this country. We are behind many of our peer nations. And, and one reason for that is is disparities based on race and ethnicity. Yeah. African-American populations, American Indian populations have significantly higher infant mortality rates than, than, than other subgroups. So race is also important. Our system also, Dr. Hyman, it, um, our health system is different in the sense that, you know, we only have about 90% of Americans with health insurance. Most of our peer countries have 99 to 100%. Uh, so a lot of differences that way. I think uh, the final difference I would note is, is uh, lately there's been a lot of research on how much we spend in this country on health care versus social services. And if, you, <laughs> and if you compare... We're, we're paying for the wrong end of the that's, equation. Well, that's right. That's right. You know, we, we spend nearly 18% of our GDP, as you know, in, Amer- in, in the United States on health care. 
uh, compared to many other That's countries. almost one in five dollars of our entire That's exactly right. economy. I mean, I mean $3.6 trillion, and, and we are headed to four, five, six trillion dollars in, in the near term. And if you compare that to our peer countries, uh, many uh, well-developed countries, that's almost twice as much on the social services side. So that, what does that mean? That means investments in housing and nutrition and transportation and education and income supports. Uh, we spend probably a little bit less than our peer countries or, or about that much. But if you look at the ratio, so social, social services to healthcare, we're at about one-to-one, whereas most of the countries uh, that we compare with are close to two to one. And that ratio matters because there's been research even domestically that looks at the 50 states in our country and those states that have a higher social service to healthcare services ratio, they have better outcomes. They have less chronic disease risk factors. They do better with chronic diseases. There's lower mortality rates. So it's really that ratio of social services to healthcare services as a country, uh, we're out of whack. So they take care of they with. take care of people before they get sick, and uh, we wait till they get sick. Absolutely. So whether it's childrens and, and child care, whether it's it's um, it's seniors and and in home supports and, and home delivered meals, whether it's paid family leave for working Americans, um, the social service reports uh, supports in those countries. We have them here, uh, but the ratio of social services to healthcare service report uh, service uh, spending that is really what's what's different. In this and I imagine what's not captured in that is, and we're spending twice as much on healthcare because we're not taking care of those people early, is also another invisible cost, which is productivity. Absolutely. Because if you have a population that's healthy, they're more productive, more engaged with their communities and families. When you have our population, which is super sick, you lose all this productivity value in the economy. So the costs are probably even more. Absolutely, right. and, and and that's not to take into account even from a national security perspective. Our, our military, these is the number one reason for for new recruits who want to enter the military. The number one reason that they're not allowed to join is is because of obesity and 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 high high body weight. So all of yeah. these issues, um, whether it's economic, military, national security, are standing. They will all connect back to the, to, to the need to focus more upstream. Yeah, and then even, you know, I mean, General Jack Keene, I, I knew him. He was a big commander in the Iraq War, and he said, you know, 70% of the recruits from the military are rejected because they're unfit to That's fight. Right. That's right. Uh, kids in school, you know, their academic performance is terrible. In America, we should have very high academic performance. We're, I think, 30 first in math and reading right. in the world, and I think Vietnam is better than us. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. so if a very poor developing country does better than us, what's going on? I mean, it's really right. speaking to the food we're feeding our kids to school lunches yeah. to the amount of uh, toxic food environment that we have that we're all exposed to that's driving these choices and it's pretty much unregulated in this country absolutely and i would say that this is the right time to be talking about this very subject because this is the first time we're experiencing in a hundred years in our nation's history since world war one where in this country we are now experiencing three consecutive years of life expectancy declines and that's because of the opioid epidemic, the obesity crisis, as well as what's, what's considered the plateauing and the decline of deaths from cardiovascular disease, as well as cancer. The CDC estimates that every year there are 250,000 potentially preventable deaths in the United States. So that's just taking the five leading causes of death, heart disease, stroke, cancer, chronic lower respiratory disease, and unintentional injury. If, if the, the states that had the highest mortality rates did as well as the states in this country, that, that, 
that had the lowest mortality rates, we would save 250,000 Americans every single year. Yeah. And so I think the time of uh, timing of, of this conversation is really it's true. is really important. And you know, it's interesting if you take a map, you can go to the CDC and see these maps of obesity, diabetes, and life expectancy, they completely superimpose in terms of the states with the highest rates of these problems. That's right. And the worst are the southeast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the southern crooked, I guess, where there's more obesity, there's more disease. And you know, when I graduated medical school, probably you did too, there was not a single state that had an obesity rate over 20%. That's right. And now there's not a single state that has an obesity rate under 20%, and many have 40, and many more are encroaching on 40. Yeah. So when you think about 40% yeah. obesity rates, 75% overweight, I mean, the entire country is affected. Absolutely, and unfortunately, many of the states that, 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 that you cited you know, have that ratio of, of, of pretty low spending on social services to healthcare mm -hmm. spending. And, and they also have high uninsured rates as well. So they're finding themselves spending a lot of money on the healthcare side of the equation for things that are that are preventable uh, if if we try to tackle them up. And front. you know, you you were in key positions in government trying to think about these problems and create policies to help overcome some of these challenges. And and it, that's not an easy job because there's so many competing forces that are at odds trying to solve the problem. Uh, we don't want to have a nanny state. You write about in your book this nanny state idea that, you know, and I'm like, well, what's wrong with nannies? What do they do? Their job is to protect our children. Shouldn't we protect our children? I mean, think about it. If there was a foreign nation that was doing to our children what we're doing to them, we would go to war to protect our kids, right? Absolutely. And yet we just kind of let it go. <laughs> how do you, how yeah. do you break through that yeah. challenge I, of know, changing those policies? I thought a lot about this while writing the book. You know, we all agree that prevention is important, but but why why has it not been the policymakers sort of elevated. The, you know, why haven't they elevated this issue to the top? And I came up with a couple, a couple of reasons that I'd be happy to share. I, I you know, I, I think the first is, and you touched on this, a lot of policymakers are, are are just reactive in general, and prevention requires a proactive approach. And the reason they're reactive is, is whether you're in the executive branch or you're a member of Congress, there are oftentimes so many emergencies, uh, either real or, or, or imagined, or crises, uh, or, or political controversies, uh, that, that oftentimes you spend a lot of time uh, reacting. Putting out the fire. Absolutely, as opposed to thinking about proactive policies to improve health. And then, um, you know, prevention oftentimes takes time as well, so you have to have that patience. And oftentimes the results are, at least from a public health perspective, are often invisible when, when things are, are working and, 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 and uh, health is being protected. And so I think the first reason uh, is that um, the mindset of policymakers needs to shift from being reactive to proactive. I think the second reason is it could very well be that policymakers are just not as attuned to the evidence base whether it's lifestyle medicine, whether it's prevention, whether it's a social determinant of health, um, um, understanding the evidence now that has been generated um, about the effects uh, of all of these other modalities, um, I think is critical. And when you don't know the evidence, um, then then you tend to think, well, that might be a slush fund. You know, those those dollars in prevention might be a slush fund, and, yeah. and you know, why should we support it? There are others, then, as you said, who who, who may think of prevention as you're right, part of the nanny state. Prevention right. is, is about individual responsibility and the government shouldn't be involved. So I think those are a couple of reasons, but then I think it goes beyond that. You know, prevention and public health, they require resources. And right now in this country, 
if you look at our national health expenditure accounts, only about 3% of our dollars go to public health. Wow. Only about 5% go to primary and secondary uh, uh, prevention. And so even though we're in a tight fiscal climate, we're always going to be in a tight fiscal climate. Finding opportunities through our discretionary budgets and our mandatory budgets, CBO doesn't always help with their 10-year uh, budget window in terms of scoring. So but, just to clarify yeah. for people, the Congressional Budget Office is the watchdog That's right. that looks over the costs of things for the government th th that's and the policies right. and laws. And, and they score policies based on their impact over a 10-year period. But that's the benefits of prevention might be over a 20-year period. So absolutely. it seems like a cost center instead of a cost savings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, I think that's a very important point. Um, um, and I think so there needs to be more focus on uh, finding um, uh, the will, really, the political will uh, to expand resources using our discretionary budgets as well as our mandatory budgets and through Medicare and Medicaid because that's really how we scale things. So I think that, that's, all, that's also a critical point. I think, Dr. Hyman, another reason why policymakers haven't gravitated towards prevention is you know, we have a $3.6 trillion healthcare system, and frankly, it can't make a lot of you can't make as much money uh, on on prevention as you yeah. can on on treatment. So the incentives there in the system are not as much there now. Value based not from the government, but not from the, yeah. but from the people running healthcare. Absolutely. Now value based healthcare transformation with the focus on payment based on outcomes as opposed to volume should change that over time. But that's 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 going to be a long haul. So we were and just still, to clarify for people, yeah. you know, the way typically doctors get paid and hospitals get paid is. Like widgets, the more That's stuff right. you do, the That's more you right. get paid. The more angioplasties you do, the more surgeries you do, the more colonoscopies you do, the more visits you do, the more money you make. That's right. And it doesn't care if the product is good or not. It's like imagine you know paying for a car, but it didn't work. <laughs> like you're not paying for the outcome. And so value-based care is a new way of thinking that's incentivizing healthcare systems and doctors to be accountable for the outcomes of their patient's health. So keeping them healthy. If now if somebody bounces back to the hospital, the doctor the hospital makes money. In the future, the hospital won't make money. It'll be making money by keeping people out of the hospital. And that's a very different paradigm shift, but we're not quite there yet. Absolutely, absolutely. We're about a decade in, into this, but still the vast majority of healthcare payments are still currently uh, paid based on um, um, the services provided and, and a fee per, per, per service. So, so we're, not, we're not quite there. And I think the last reason why uh, you know, this hasn't really uh, you know, gotten the attention of policymakers is, is really, I think if you look at the general public as well, we haven't galvanized the American public. Um, and whether that's um, they don't realize the power of prevention uh, or, or um, we haven't realized or, or, the, or, or we haven't communicated to them the importance of sound policies to support the healthy choice, right? Uh, policymakers need to help Americans uh, make the healthy choice the easy choice. Um, and, and so I think galvanizing the public, um, you know, there are not a lot of lobbying firms or interest groups going to members every single day in the halls of Congress preaching, yeah. preaching the power of prevention. But, but you do need a grassroots movement. You do need the American public to say, hey, I'm doing everything I can every day for, for my family to eat well, to exercise, to avoid um, substances, to stop smoking, to, to drink uh, alcohol in moderation. I'm doing everything I can. But, but if there are not community supports, if there are not policy supports, if there aren't policy systems and environmental change helping me and my family, yeah. it's going to be very, very difficult to do. And I think that's a critical message in this book. I think it's pretty important because if you don't 
actually provide an environment that allows people to make easy, healthy choices, as you know, it, it, it's hard to do the right thing. And I think one of the biggest challenges in this conversation is the sort of dichotomy between the idea of personal responsibility and sort of the nanny state, you know, the environment we live in, how do we change the toxic environment? And I think, you know, most of the messaging from most of professional associations, much of our government policy, and certainly the food industry is that it's your fault you're overweight. It's your fault you're sick. It's a personal choice, just like smoking is a personal choice. And and, and they talk about moderation. There's no good and bad calories. That you know, a thousand calories of broccoli is the same as a thousand calories of soda. There's focus on exercise as the solution. There's focus about moderation. You know, it's it's really interesting, and it and it's a, a culture that's really focused on personal responsibility, but it ignores the fact that you actually can't be personally responsible in a toxic environment. If you can't go in your neighborhood and buy a vegetable and you have to take two hours of buses Absolutely. for, you know, buy a carrot, yeah. that's a problem, right? Yeah. And if and if we don't address the environment we live in, we're not gonna be able to get people to make healthy choices. I remember reading a study where they looked at people who were overweight and diabetic who lived in very low socioeconomic neighborhoods. They moved to a slightly better neighborhood and their blood uh, sugar went down and their weight went down. Without any other intervention, yeah, yeah. just giving them a better zip Amazing. code. Amazing. So yeah. basically the zip code we have is a bigger yeah. determinant than our genetic code yeah. when it comes to our health. And we don't really seem to acknowledge that in our policies. We say it's all about choice. And I think yeah. one of the areas I wanted to talk about in this is, is the whole SNAP debate. Now, the Bipartisan Policy Center, and you write about it in your book, Prevention First, mm-hmm. did a very important report called Leading with Nutrition that outlines some of the challenges with our food stamp or SNAP program, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance, which is, I don't know what should be called that because it's Supplemental Food Assistance. It's not nutrition, I would call most of it, because 75% of it is junk food, 10% of it is soda. And um, and it's very clear that people who, you know, compared to an income-eligible person who's not on SNAP is less healthy, uh, and they drink more soda, uh, and they have more health uh, consequences. So, you know, people go, well, we can't really limit people's choice when it comes to soda. They have to be able to buy that. It's going to stigmatize them. Uh, you know, and, and, and you're right. The policymakers are, are influenced by big food. I mean, soda companies, Coca-Cola, I think 20% of their U.S. income is from food stamps. Walmart, of the $750 billion in a farm bill for food stamps, about $138 billion goes to Walmart. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they don't want this to change. Yeah. And and it's it's a real challenge. And and you're right. I mean, I remember walking into uh, Senator Harkin's office. It was a really great senator. He's no longer a senator. But I said, you know, he said, well, what, what organization are you from? And I'm like, well, none. I'm just representing the science and the policy and yeah. my patients. Yeah. And I want to yeah. get science yeah. into policy. He goes, well, that would make too much sense. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think... So when you've got all this evidence that this is true, that we right. know as doctors and scientists that this is really the problem. That's right. But the policies really are are being heavily influenced by lobby money. Yeah. How do you how do you yeah. deal with that and, and sort of break this, this cycle of blaming the victim and not changing the environment and not helping people make better choices? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sorry, the, that was a little windy. No, speech, that, that, but. Uh, no, <laughs> terrific. And, and thank you for raising this topic. So the SNAP program, previously the food stamp program, you know, the purpose of the Bipartisan Policy Center's task force was really put the N back in SNAP, which yeah. is exactly your point that nutrition and, and diet quality ought to be a, a key factor of that program. You know, the program has been around for for several decades now, 40 million 
million Americans rely on the SNAP program um, uh, every year. Um, it has substantially reduced food insecurity in this country, which yes. is really important. And food insecurity does have indirect health benefits for children, uh, for, for new mothers, uh, for seniors uh, as well. Uh, but with our obesogenic environment and, and the last several decades, uh, the program has not evolved um, to ensure that diet quality and nutrition is paramount as well. And you're absolutely right. The number one um, c consumption of, 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 SNAP of SNAP and Rollies uh, are soda products. Now, that's not too different than, than the rest of the population where soda is, is number two. Uh, but it does <laughs> sort of beg the question that, that are we doing the best job that we can to incentivize the consumption of healthy food and disincentivize the consumption of, of unhealthy food. And what our task force did is, you know, there were Republicans on there, Democrats on there, and we asked ourselves some pretty tough, tough questions. Uh, SNAP is an important program. It reduces yeah, food insecurity. For sure. But how do you improve nutrition? When we looked at sugar-sweetened beverages, Dr. Hammond, as you know, there is no nutritional uh, nutritional impact in on, in soda and sugar sweetened beverages, uh, and, and yet well, there uh, is. It's, it's harmful. It, it's absolutely yeah. In <laughs> not, terms of in not terms only of a good lack health. of benefit, right. but it's right. it a tremendous harm. Is a, a leading cause of obesity and diabetes. And what we saw in in the retailer community, in fact, during the period when 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 SNAP. Um, um, enrollees were, were, were purchasing um, uh, their food, uh, sugar-sweetened beverage and soda were, were really the ones that were being marketed to them, uh, you know, and, and I think we all found well, it. We, I want you to, to yeah. hit on that for a little bit because yeah. people don't realize that when the first of the month comes, people get their benefit that's cards. True. That's when these stores that are in these poor neighborhoods highly advertise Disproportionate for, marketing. Yeah, and, not, and, and even yeah. Yeah, in, in better neighborhoods that are more affluent, they don't advertise. Absolutely. So they're tar they're literally it's it's race yeah. targeting, yeah. it's poverty yeah. targeting. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that adds to you know issues about health equity and it adds to health disparities as well. Uh, and so you know the task force recommended it, it was a, a difficult recommendation, but that sugar sweetened beverages ought to be excluded. Um, and that doesn't mean that individuals can't purchase. Uh, these things out of their own pocket, but from a health perspective uh, and a taxpayer-funded program, we ought to be, again, incentivizing healthy um, food and disincentivizing unhealthy food. In fact, there was a follow-up study from Tufts University and Harvard School of Public Health that actually looked at the mix of both incentives and disincentives yeah. over time, an excellent simulation, and found that you could, you, you could prevent, uh, you know, a substantial amount of heart disease and diabetes and save healthcare costs. Billions of uh, dollars. Billions of dollars. And and there is a, the Venn diagrams between SNAP and, and, for example, Medicaid overlap in such a way that, that this could have significant impacts on state Medicaid, uh, Medicaid programs. So I think there's a lot there. We wanted to, uh, you know, we really wanted to, to elevate this issue that, um, yeah, the SNAP program is important, but if it can involve to elevate nutrition, uh, then then we can really do something uh, for, for the public. But self. you know, you've got the hunger groups completely opposed to this. Yeah. You know, yeah. that are are focused on food insecurity and yeah. hunger, and they're like, well, you can't you yeah. can't restrict that. Yeah. It's going to stigmatize these people. Yeah. You know, they should have the same opportunity to purchase as everybody else. But you know, you you can purchase a two liter bottle of soda, but you can't purchase a rotisserie chicken on food yeah. stamps. So there are restrictions. You can't buy cigarettes. You can't buy alcohol. You can't buy cooked food. There's a lot of the restrictions. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other programs we have in the government, like WIC, it's women, yep. infants, and children, and school lunches, they have nutrition guidelines. Yeah. 
ensure quality nutrition, but we don't have that. And it, yeah. there's so many groups opposing any yeah. change. Yeah. So how do you see that happening? It just seems like a hopeless cause. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I think we talk about that a little bit in the book that, that you know, we released the recommendations and, and uh, there, there, there weren't a lot of people sort of cheering because on both sides, there were folks who said, oh, leave it alone, don't touch it. We want to focus just on food insecurity. On the other side, there are folks saying, "Hey, well, you know, we question the fiscal integrity of the program," and 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 so we we again had had both sides involved. That's what we do at the bipartisan policy center, and said, you know, for looking at from a health perspective, um, um, improving on the current program is the is the way to go, and that's been our message to, to lawmakers and policymakers as well. Um, you know, the farm bill passed uh, uh, recently, um, uh, but every several years, uh, these issues uh, get, get resurfaced. So I think we have to keep on, um, you know, uh, uh, ensuring that there's a drumbeat to ensure that the N in SNAP, the nutrition part, uh, becomes a paramount principle. And, you know, and that's part of what you talk about in terms of the social determinants of health. You know, we've talked about on this show before, but, you know, people don't understand that the environment when you, you live is yeah. a bigger determinant of your health outcomes than anything else. Absolutely. Right? Even than your diet or exercise or smoking. Yep. And and those things are not addressed in healthcare. We sort of ignore them, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, you talk about, you know, healthcare without walls. What does that look like? And yeah. what do we have to think about differently in, in how to address these things? Yeah, uh, healthcare is slowly moving in this direction, but but, but they are, um, and, and probably they're in a better place to address social needs. And there's an important distinction, I think, between social needs and social determinants of health. Social determinants of health for housing, let's say, is building affordable housing. Addressing a social need is modifying the home to, re to reduce falls, for example. For nutrition, social determinants of health are ensuring that healthy food financing initiatives, you can increase the availability of healthier food, farmer's market. You know, social needs is ensuring there's a home-delivered meal. For transportation, right. social determinants of health is improving community infrastructure through land use or zoning policy. For social needs, it's ensuring that there's ride sharing available so people can make their uh, appointments. Yeah. So healthcare is getting into the business of, of social needs because they see it connected to the value proposition of improving outcomes and potentially reducing preventable healthcare yeah. costs. And I think that's all fine, but but their healthcare is not going to take care of the broader social determinants of health. We still need focus and resources on education and income and housing and nutrition and transportation because you're exactly right. Those have profound implications on the health of the population and are also connected to a lot of the behavioral risk factors that yeah. are driving chronic diseases. Yeah. So, you know, it seems to me, and I'm obviously biased because I'm focused on food a lot, <laughs> but it seems to me that, you know, the food and the food system, if, if we had to pick one thing to target, would be the biggest thing. And that, because that's affecting the chronic disease burden, the majority of, I think, chronic diseases are, are caused in part by diet, as 11 million people die every year around the world from diet-related disease. I think it's an underestimate because when you add in the, the additional causes such as diabetes and heart disease, and yeah. it's sort of, it's like in the 40, 50 million range. Agreed. And, and so um, when, you, when, you, when you have that level of, of impact, it seems like we can't address all these issues unless we fix the food system. Yeah. And, and that the forces that are opposing that are quite big. You know, just the farm bill alone is a half a... Yeah billion dollars yeah. of lobbying on it yeah. just for that and majority yeah. of that is food stamp yeah. so how do we how do we you've been in government you've been yeah. in these conversations you you you're not just sort of talking about it from a think tank you've actually yeah. been there um what's your perspective on how you move the needle i mean do yeah. we have to wait for new administration do we have to wait till the community of uh, activists rises up and yeah. like abolition and changes our government i mean yeah. what, what do we have to do to see change because it's 
discouraging for people to sort of feel like they can do anything about this. Yeah, yeah. Given the political winds in this country change, um, um, you know, uh, pretty regularly, I think it's important, Dr. Hyman, that, that we um, take incremental progress whenever we can. But you're absolutely right. Your premise that that I, I so take a base hit. Uh, well, well, I, I think I think you know I think you have to uh, um, educate policymakers. That's what part of this book is. Uh, you know, we should go for the whole, you know, it shouldn't be that, that we're just going for base hits. We should go for the home run. Uh, but it's also important when there are incremental opportunities sort of to take them. I agree a hundred percent with your premise. Uh, I, I, I call sort of obesity, the public health challenge of, of, of our century. I mean, that is the, uh, the critical challenge. Cancer will soon in this country be the leading cause of death for Americans and, and it'll surpass heart disease. And the reason for that is really, um, um, obesity and, and poor poor diet. So people don't understand this, but obesity yeah. is linked to cancer. It's not Absolutely. just heart disease and diabetes. Yeah, at least a dozen cancers uh, are now very well, uh, the establishment, um, uh, the, the link between obesity and cancer is now pretty well developed. And, and so, the most common cancers, breast, colon, absolutely. prostate, all the big ones. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, th- I think that, that, that we need to, you know, so when I talk about sort of incremental progress, so for example, right now, um, you know, I try to look at things as sort of glass half full from a policy perspective. Uh, you look at the Food and Drug Administration. I think there's an important, in the next several months, uh, a new change to the, to the nutrition facts label um, in that all foods will need to have information about added sugars. Uh, and that's, that's pretty important. In fact, there was a recent study done that, that, that if, in fact, um, uh, this is done over the next, um, you know, two decades, uh, there would be substantial reductions in both diabetes and, and cardiovascular deaths and, and significant healthcare cost savings. Now, if, if the industry actually then reformulated their foods, given that now this is transparent on the label, uh, there would be even more, um, it, a doubling of an impact over 20 years, I think. It would go from $30 billion in healthcare cost savings to $60 billion, and from 1 million cases of heart disease and diabetes averted to 2 million. So these are, these are substantial uh, pieces. Salt, voluntary sodium reduction so it's voluntary this was this was started in, <laughs> good luck in, with that <laughs> this was started in the obama administration yeah. in 2016 but this current administration is moving forward um with voluntary sodium targets in 150 different food groups and if in, indeed uh manufacturers are able to meet these targets uh within two years we can uh, reduce the average consumption of sodium in this country which is about 3400 milligrams to 3000 Within 10 years, we can get to 2,300 milligrams, and that could save you know, substantial lives down the road in terms of heart disease and, and reduce healthcare costs. So I think there are some things that don't get a lot of attention, I think, that, that are important. There are then more challenging things, um, sugar-sweetened beverages and, 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 and the taxation of that and, and the politics of that. Portion size, which I think is, is a really important issue also over the last several decades, the portions of food that, that we get are so large. So Deborah Cohen, who's a researcher at RAND, has done some important work on portion sizes and has shown um, that, that, that as portions have increased, our consumption has increased, uh, um, of course, as well. And she's actually advocated for uh, standardizing portion size, just like yeah. we do with alcohol. So if you have a, uh, a certain amount of alcohol, there's a standard size, there's standard size of portions you could reduce consumption there, particularly for unhealthy food. So this takes away the whole idea of personal choice. It's sort of like mandating different portion size. I remember Dan Butner, yeah. who wrote the book Blue Zones, create initiative, and yeah. I think it was in uh, some Midwest state, and and essentially got 
community interventions that were invisible. Yeah. So th- everybody switched out their plates to 10-inch plates. Yeah. What was it? The checkout counters at the grocery stores changed to healthy options instead of candy. Yes. They built walking paths. They, they basically yeah. created initiatives that were just sort of frictionless. Yeah. allowed people to make better choices. Yeah. Yeah, and that made exactly. a huge difference in healthcare costs and health outcomes. That's I mean, right. and it's stuff that we think of as sort of the nanny state, but yeah. it's actually stuff that's proven to be effective. And, and I would say that it, it doesn't just, it, I would probably say that it doesn't actually take away individual choice. So people are certainly, you so know. Can go back for seconds? They, 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 yeah, absolutely. But, but I think it's shown that, 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 that when, when the healthy choice is the easy choice or, or um, that, that people um, change their practices. Yeah. And I think that information, take menu labeling now, which, which is, is common, and that policy change. So giving people the information, I think the behavioral economics piece yeah. that you're talking about, um, those things, I think incremental um, ways forward in those areas, um, I think are, are important as well. My favorite studies where they, they took people and gave them a bowl of cereal. One bowl constantly refilled from the bottom and the other one just was a fixed amount of cereal. And the ones that had the constantly refilling cereal just kept eating it. Like it was like a trick bowl. <laughs> that, that, that might be me because I actually love cereal. So maybe I, I, I could admit on your podcast that, that uh, cereal That's is okay. one of my... We all have our weaknesses. <laughs> Although I think you know, I'm a cereal killer. <laughs> I hate Cereal, I think it's one of the worst inventions yeah, well, of our society. Well, no, it's 75% it, it, sugar. It Talk about added sugar. Right oh my there. God. I yeah, mean, that's it, huge. It is, it, absolutely. Okay, so let's, let's so, so as a policymaker, um, now as a policy think tank yeah. advocate, um, you sort of mentioned a lot of these initiatives you think can make a difference. But I just keep pushing back against the idea of, you know, how, do, how does the individual citizen sort of get their yeah. congressman to go? Because they don't have, you know, millions of dollars to go lobby. Right? I, when I went to Washington, I paid my own ticket, I paid my own hotel, and Washington's not cheap. I paid my own food. And they're like, who are you? Where are you from? And what are you doing? I'm like, because they've never seen an individual be an advocate. Yeah. Uh, and so, but there are ways, right? There are ways to get involved. And I think uh, there's a, I think the Food Policy Action Network is, I think, a group that mm-hmm. scores your congressmen and senators on their voting on food and ag policy. So there are ways to sort of affect it. But it, it's tough because, you know, you've got, yeah. for example, on the SNAP, uh, subject you probably aware of this but when there's a hearing about snap to try to improve the nutrition quality in snap and talk about the soda reduction maybe you were at yeah. the hearing yeah uh there were many of the com- committee members on the ed committee who basically said it's all about personal responsibility yeah. it's about more exercise yeah that's the real problem it's not about the food yeah and when you look at who was funding their campaigns yeah. it was soda companies yeah at tunes to the tune of literally and collectively millions of dollars. Yeah. How do you fight that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, um, you know, first and foremost, um, um, helping Americans understand um, that there are things that the go- that government and policymakers can do to, to support them in these areas, that, that it's not just about personal responsibility. And, and so some of it is sort of education and empowerment um, there. Um, some of it is also the, the doctor-patient relationship. As you know, Dr. Hyman is a trusted one. Um, I think, uh, you know, ensuring that healthcare professionals can be that voice as well to support, um, uh, to support patients. Um, some of this is educating um, policymakers as well, and policymakers, um, um, you know, on their own understanding the importance of prevention. So in my, in my book, for example, there are five sort of key takeaways for, for policymakers at, at the end in terms of what they can do to support uh, Americans. You know, the, the first, for example, 
to make prevention the number one priority for this or any administration um, um, coming in. Uh, the Health and Human Services Secretary saying, you know, there's a lot of mission essential functions, but prevention will be the number one priority. All of our agencies, whether it's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or the FDA or the National Institutes of Health, you know, figure out how prevention uh, elevates to the top. Number two, healthcare professionals uh, in value-based healthcare transformation. We're now going to measure you and hold you accountable, not just for how well you manage diabetes or heart disease, but how well you prevent them in the first place. We're going to hold you accountable, not for how how much you screen, just screen for obesity yeah. or tobacco. Just do the test but, for but, blood sugar, yeah, but like yeah. actually but, get but, them but better. actually reduce it. And, and what that'll do is force sort of the healthcare community to build the clinical community linkages to help support individuals. So that's sort of a second takeaway. A third takeaway is... And these are all in the book. These are all uh, in the book, right, right. First. These are sort of the five overarching takeaways for policymakers, which I think then can be helpful to, to Americans out there. The third is, in this country, if you're a a drug, a pill, or, or a device, there's a pathway in this country uh, for uh, that, that intervention uh, to be scaled. There is a Food and Drug Administration that, that assesses safety and efficacy. And once FDA approves that intervention, CMS, Medicare and Medicaid, uh, decides uh, whether it's reasonable or necessary for payment or for coverage. And then a lot of private payers follow what Medicare does. Yeah, but if just, you're just an, to interrupt you there yeah. for a minute. The recent study that was published showing that stents and bypass and angioplasties don't work for the majority of patients yeah. that get them is not a new story. I read this article in yeah. different iterations in the past and it yeah. keeps getting repeated and the research gets more robust. And yet Medicare and Medicaid pay for these services because they're a device and they're That's sort right. of yeah. in, but they won't pay for stuff that works like that Absolutely. lifestyle yeah. program that can reverse diabetes. Right, 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 on, on the treatment side. So, but if you're an evidence-based program and, and either prevention or treatment, lifestyle focused, to your point, there is no pathway in this country like there is if you're um, a drug or, or a device. Yeah. And, and yet there are so many evidence-based programs like the one you just mentioned, the lifestyle treatment or prevention programs, whether it's falls prevention or chronic disease self-management programs. Um, there, there are so many programs out there where thousands are benefiting, but millions need to be benefited. So yeah. in my book, I actually call for a parallel pathway. <clears throat> yeah. Just like you have FDA looking at the safety and efficacy of drugs or devices, whether it's CDC or the Administration on Aging, Congress ought to give them a regulatory authority to review a lot of these evidence-based community treatment or prevention programs. And if they meet the bar, then CMS would, would have to consider them as being reasonable and necessary for payment, just like they do for a drug. So in other words, at Cleveland Clinic, we've got our program called Functioning for Life, where we yeah. take people in with chronic disease, yeah. we change their lifestyle, we change their diet, we actually through social support help, support help them change their behavior, we're seeing extraordinary results. Yep. I mean, reversing diabetes, heart failure, all kinds of stuff, yep. weight loss, obviously. And yet, you know, it's not really reimbursed. That's right. There's and a, we're saving, we're saving there, so right. much money right. and we're not getting paid for what we do. We get paid, yeah. you know, 30 cents on the dollar and we're luckily if we make a hundred bucks on a patient yeah. and we see them or less, you know, yeah. uh, and it doesn't even cover our cost of running our center. Yeah. Yeah. But we're providing so much value in the system, yeah. which is benefiting Medicare, Medicaid, and also private insurers. Yeah. Yeah. And so the whole system is sort of rigged to right. not incentivize to do the right thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And so, and there's no money to study it. I was like, I'd love to get, you know, 
I mean, there's literally billions of dollars spent on research in this right. country and almost nothing spent on nutrition or lifestyle research. That, that's right. And, and therefore, a parallel pathway could, could help infuse resources uh, in, you know, to, to research uh, as well as ensure that there's not a double standard for a lot of these interventions uh, that, that uh, are focused on lifestyle or occur outside the clinical, uh, clinical arena. Amen to that. Now, there's two other points. Two, two others. The fourth is, um, look, we have about a $4 trillion budget in the federal government. This is prevention, public health. It's too important to underfund this. And there needs to be bipartisan support um, to finance uh, evidence-based prevention and public health uh, interventions. So it could be community-based prevention programs. I talk about several things that that we did at Health and Human Services from from the Recovery Act back in 2009. There are opportunities to finance the public health infrastructure, which is significantly underfunded in this country. A public health emergency fund, so the next Ebola or the Zika we face, we're not waiting on Congress to fight for, for months at a time before there, there are resources. But targeted investments to lift up prevention and public health, uh, that, that seems to be, that has to be a national priority. And I, I think in terms of bipartisanship, how do you crack that nut? And there was an important commission on evidence-based policymaking that Senator Patty Murray, Murray and f- former Speaker Paul Ryan actually led a couple years ago and talked about sort of an evidence, uh, the importance of evidence-based policymaking. In in that same vein, there ought to be bipartisanship around what are those priorities in the prevention and public health space that we actually need to invest more in. Right, because the truth is, you know, food industry and pharma are not investing in research around this. That's right, that's right. And that leads me to sort of the fifth point, which is we need, Dr. Hyman, more research. I mean, we have have evidence base right now, but we need more research into prevention. Now, the National Institutes on Health estimates that 19% of their budget every year goes to prevention. Now, one could ask, is that the right number or not? I, I don't know. Uh, another, is that really true? 19% of the NIH budget goes to prevention? 19%. Now, there's another study that I recently saw that if you look at the National Cancer Institute, only 5% of their budget goes to prevention. So whatever the number is, uh, I would think I think that these are all sort of low. Well, that, well, let's just define prevention because yeah. is a mammogram prevention, is a colonoscopy prevention? No, it's yeah. early detection. Yeah, yeah. Right. True prevention is really dealing with the causes, the upstream causes right. that you talked about in your book. Right, right, right. And so I would argue, and I argue in the book that that there ought to be a much more um, focused uh, research. Um, uh, emphasis on prevention that looks at and not just sort of the biology um, of, of illnesses, but also the importance of behavioral change as well as policy as, as well as other areas. And so, and that will also actually help the Congressional Budget Office, irrespective of what happens with the 10-year budget window, the more research, the more evidence there will help policymakers. So I think in all five of these areas, uh, number one, uh, leadership prioritizing prevention. Number two, healthcare professionals focusing on prevention, not just management. Number three, a parallel pathway for lifestyle interventions and evidence-based community prevention I- interventions. Number four, um, um, public health resources. And number five, prevention research. All of these, they're all heavy lifts, Dr. Hyman, but, but I think that I wouldn't be writing a book if, if these weren't heavy yeah, lifts, yeah, but, yeah. but these are absolutely important for policymakers on both sides of the aisle to understand the importance of these. And I think if there's movement on the policy side, the American public will will, will see this uh, also as a way to support themselves as they try to make uh, sort of the healthy choice. But 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 the American public is, is clamoring for assistance. The, you yeah. know, behavioral change 
is difficult given the environment, yeah. which you have so beautifully described. And and I think the best way to counter that uh, that, that that environment is through policy change and empowered Americans speaking out. Yeah, one of the things you mentioned in your book is in addition to sort of these points is sort of targeting things that work but aren't paid for. So yeah. digital health, for example. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Omada Health, yeah. which I helped advise when they yeah. were starting out. Right, right. And I, and I said to them, look, the diabetes prevention was a good start, but it's based on a little bit antiquated nutritional yeah. data about low-fat diets sure. and high-carb diets for diabetics. But it worked because, and I met people who were in the program, yeah. And they said, well, the work because we came to groups because we had to write down everything we ate because we exercised together. Yeah. And, the group you know, dynamics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't so much the food, although it yeah. was healthier. Yeah. yeah. It yeah. wasn't the healthiest. Yeah. And, um, and there's been more sort of advanced versions of that that have developed yeah. uh, that are digital. For example, yeah. Verda Health, you probably heard about, yeah. where they literally take in poorly controlled, like pretty overweight poorly yeah. controlled diabetics, yeah. 60%, yeah. 60% reversal. Now, yeah. in traditional medicine, it's like zero. That's amazing. It's yeah. zero, yeah. right? Yeah. Unless you get a gastric bypass. Yeah, that's right. And, and they, they had 60% reversal. They had 90% amazing. or more off of insulin or yeah. very low insulin doses. They had 12% weight loss, which is yeah. a massive amount. And weight loss studies, you get five. Everybody's yeah. dancing around happy and you yeah. know, excited for 5% weight loss. And they did it through a digital platform where yeah. there were coaches and support. There was remote monitoring for ketones, for weight, for yep. blood sugar. And they, they published the data using a ketogenic intervention, which is the opposite of the DPP, which is yep. you know basically high fat. And and yet this is not reimbursed. Yeah. And it's yeah. the amount of savings yeah. in these patients just astronomical. So yeah. how do we sort of get because this sort of goes back to the conversation we we're having earlier about prevention and treatment. So prevention is important. Yeah. It's a population-based intervention. And, yeah. you, you know, not all the people you're going to do the intervention on are going to get the problem. In other words, yeah. not everybody who gets a colonoscopy was going to get colon cancer, right? Yeah. But everybody who's already sick yeah. needs the intervention of yeah. lifestyle interventions because yeah. it's lifestyle as treatment, not yeah. only as prevention. Right, right, right. But that's not reimbursed. And yet it's probably the biggest bang for yeah. the buck in terms of our healthcare system. And how do we, how do we get our government to start to understand that and maybe it's what you talked about is yeah funding more research that proves the model right right well i, I think it's all the above also having pathways again as you said there's no real pathway uh medicare medicaid don't really know what to do with a lot of these interventions that that are not um sort of the traditional sort of medical model as you know in 1965 when medicare was uh first um uh, created it was essentially uh, paid for the treatment of disease using uh, you know um, uh, routine medical services. So so it hasn't really uh, caught up with today's day and age and what we know about the importance of lifestyle me medicine either with prevention or or treatment. Um, so I think some of this is is research. Some of this are new pathways in the government uh, regulatory pathways. Uh, some of this is educating the public. Uh, it's really going to take, I think, all of the above to sort of change the status quo because there are a lot of opportunities out there that are not being realized right now. So you were you were in the middle of it all. Yeah. Did you feel like there was movement when you were there? That people were were trying to actually shift the policies in ways that actually were effective, or was it sort of spinning wheels? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think um, uh, you know. Because people go, government's broken. It's not going to do anything. Yeah. What's the point? But yeah. you, you have a different view. Yeah, there, 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 there are lots of lots of things that I saw. I mean, with the Affordable Care Act, just take clinical preventive services. One part of that was now high value clinical preventive services. Uh, there ought to be no cost sharing for them, and that makes sense from a value based insurance design perspective. Uh, and that should increase the likelihood that Americans receive 
you know, high value evidence-based clinical preventive services. So meaning if, if people yeah. need to get screened for disease or a pap test or mammogram, That's right. they That's shouldn't right. have to pay for it. That's and the right. private insurance shouldn't give them a copay and Medicare shouldn't give them a copay. That's absolutely right. Cancer screenings or, or, or counseling interventions for tobacco, alcohol, immunizations, these things uh, can improve health. We can't hey, get a nutrition appointment reimbursed. For well, well, right, right. Well, I think we still have a, a, a ways oh, to go in, in some areas, but but that's just one example where we're trying to make it easier for, for people uh, to, to, to access important clinical preventive services. In terms of community preventive services, I know that the Diabetes Prevention Program maybe has antiquated sort of uh, nutrition aspect of the intensive lifestyle piece there. But there, uh, you know, the team at Medicare and Medicaid, yeah. just getting the diabetes prevention program through uh, took a lot of work. Yeah. And it, it required the authorities of a newly created center at Medicare and Medicaid called CMMI, which is a center for Medicare and Medicaid innovation. There, there was a, a test, essentially, of the diabetes prevention program. It was found to save money and reduce costs. That's the only way it got expanded. Sure. But that's why I call for a parallel pathway. Otherwise, you're reliant on... on, on but um, the government has to fund this. This is not coming from industry, right? Yeah, exactly. I, exactly. So, so I think you know, the government... Um, you know, and, and the reason why the government's so important is the private sector is critical, but there's only so much from a scale perspective that philanthropy or nonprofit organizations can do. The needs here are for millions, and we're only reaching thousands. And the only way to scale from thousands to millions... Uh, there, probably, there, there, there could be other ways, but, but gov government, there is a role for government, and I think that's part of the premise of the book as well. Mm. And, and the, the uh, sort of community-based stuff is important because <clears throat> when you think about where disease happens or where health happens, it doesn't happen in, in the hospital or the clinic. You know, 80% of our health is determined by where we live and by our diet and lifestyle and our genes, things that have nothing to do with what you get when you go to the hospital or see the doctor. And yet... 80% of our funding is for what happens with the doctor right. and hospital. So it's right. completely backwards. Yeah, it, it is absolutely. I mean, we talk about the importance, for example, you know, nutrition counseling. But <laughs> if you get the best nutrition counseling, but then somebody walks out of that clinical setting, they see fast food establishments, mm -hmm. they see no farmer's markets, there are no Meals on Wheels programs, mm -hmm. how do you expect them to? So the whole idea of clinical community linkages is to reinforce what happens um, all the important efforts on the clinical side to reinforce them on the community side. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they're not going to stick. So one example, a couple of years ago, I was out in the south side of Chicago, and and I visited a program called Community Rx. And essentially in this Love program, that. Community Rx. Um, community is medicine. Exactly. The, the, the Community Rx, they, the, the program mapped out social service providers and community-based organizations around the city and then they took that information, linked it to the uh, electronic health record, and and linked it to particular conditions and, and diagnoses. So at the same time, whenever a, an, in, a patient came to a community health center, they, they always got a healthy RX script based on their diagnosis, matching them up with appropriate community services in the community. So what they learned in the clinical setting was was then then they received um, essentially referrals to get s supports in the community to reinforce what they learn in the clinic. And that's just sort of one example of how we need to build these clinical community linkages. Yeah, you know, I, <clears throat> Clinton Clinic, we started a program with, because I'm a very strong advocate of getting out of the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> and it's there when you need it. I mean, I had a uh, heart rhythm problem this year and I had to have an ablation. I'm like, thank God. But, <clears throat> um, you know, most of the problems in these communities are not what's going on in the hospital yeah. and can't be solved there. Uh, so we went to, you know, very underserved 
African-American community in Cleveland, near Cleveland Clinic, and we started a community program in a community center. It wasn't in a hospital. It was in their community health center. And, no, it wasn't even a hospital. It was just a community center. And we developed a group program. I arranged for them to get meals, yeah. sort of fresh, whole food meals, got them the right nutrients just as a sort of temporary solution, see what would happen if yeah. people had the support. Because right. in their neighborhood, there was right. nowhere to get good food. Right. And within like six weeks, it's a 10-week program. We're going to have a follow-on for a year. There were dramatic changes. I mean, yeah. people lost 20 pounds in five weeks. They had dramatic drops in their blood sugar, their blood pressure. This one who had a stroke, couldn't really talk or lift anything, now was talking and actually was able to carry things with their arm. I mean, it was, I was shocked. And, and it was so simple. And we taught them to cook. We did cooking classes yeah. together. They went shopping. They learned about food. They, you know, I, we had talks with the nutritionists and the health coaches. And it was re it's really powerful because they wanted to change. They just yeah. didn't know what or how. And nobody showed them or nobody told them. Yeah, that's and yeah. it's and and I think those kinds of things are what we need to be thinking about. Absolutely. This is not going to be solved in the hospital. We still need acute care medicine for yeah. sure. Yeah. But the problems we have aren't solved in the hospitals. Yeah, uh, absolutely agree. I'll give you another example. Geisinger Health System in central Pennsylvania. Your podcast is called The Doctor's Pharmacy. They opened up their first food pharmacy a couple years ago. And they did a really good job matching the acuity of the individual with the intensity of the intervention. So they took poorly controlled di diabetic patients who screened positive for food insecurity. And the intervention there was not just sort of diabetes self-management training and, and counseling. They actually provided the food. Two, two meals a day for, you know, 10 meals a week. For the whole family. For the whole family. Right. And what they found just in their pilot was the average hemoglobin A1C, which is an indicator of, of, of severity of diabetes, fell from 9.6% to 7.5%. And why okay. that matters is, is every 1% drop reduces uh, mortality from diabetes and complications by 20% and saves $8,000 in healthcare costs. And what, what's also important to realize is that two-point drop may yeah. not seem like a lot. Yeah. But if a drug gets a half a point That's drop, right. it's That's a right. raging well, success, well, right? There you go. So you, it's four times as good as drug effects. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Right? So there's evidence based. So why doesn't Medicare now pay for food pharmacies and pay for yeah. food for everybody? Yeah. Well, well, I think we need to move in that direction. Again, it's the medical model that has been the focus of policymakers for so long. And as we build this evidence base, uh, and in some areas it's substantial now, that, that different "Quote unquote" types of interventions can actually do more than the traditional interventions. That's more than we, medical interventions. More, more than medical interventions. That's where we need to, to focus because that's where we'll deliver uh, uh, not just the best improvements in health, but also the most significant healthcare cost savings. So, if you were um, an autocrat and you were in charge of America and policy, and you were the Putin of healthcare, and you could do—I mean, it's not a bad, good analogy—but you could actually just take a wand and and make the changes that you see are gonna make the most difference, um, what would they be? Well, you mentioned the five things already. Yeah, it, like yeah. if you, cause those things are, are realistic, yeah. but if, if you really yeah. had things that were gonna have the biggest impact, what yeah. would you do? Well, I, across, I would, across, not just in terms of healthcare, but like across our whole society yeah. in terms of making the changes that need to happen. So I'd be laser focused on, on the risk factors driving chronic diseases in this country, uh, as well as the social determinants of health. And there are organizations out there like Trust for America's Health who've, who issued recommendations um, um, in, in this area. But, but I, I think it's really a package, Dr. Hyman, of, of policy changes. So on the chronic disease risk factor side of the equation, whether it's tobacco or you know poor diet, lack of physical activity, alcohol, there are a series of policy interventions there. Smoke-free laws are raising uh, pricing on tobacco, 
uh, reducing alcohol sort of um, uh, outlet density, uh, increasing nutrition, physical activity access in schools, um, uh, reducing the availability of, of, of unhealthy uh, foods in, in different ways. There are a package of policy, I think, changes uh, there. And then on, on the social determinants of health side, whether it's housing and affordable housing, housing first, uh, whether it's education, universal pre-kindergarten, whether it's income, paid family mm. leave, um, you know, earned income tax credit, there are a series of interventions that go beyond the four walls of the clinical setting, yeah. but tackle both the social determinants of health as well as the lifestyles, the risk factors driving chronic disease. And in this country, as you know, Half of adults have chronic diseases. Um, 60% half of that half, now. Yeah, 60% now. Half of that half have multiple chronic conditions, yeah. which was really my focus at Health and Human Services. And virtually all the $3.6 trillion that we spend in this country go there. So I would be yeah. laser-like focused on, on, on the risk factors driving chronic disease and the interplay that the social determinants have and, and policies there. So a lot of this, again, is outside yeah. the four walls of the mm, clinical setting. I agree. I, I would... I would add in there, and I think, you know, it's going in the upstream conversation is, yep. you know, what is driving the social determinants? What is driving the disease? For the most part, I would say yeah. it's our food system. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you have to change the way we grow food, yeah. Yeah. what food we grow, yeah. how it's supported, yeah. all those upstream things. It's like we're just still yeah. down in the weeds if yeah. we don't actually change the food environment. Yeah. Yeah. If you look at the subsidies going to the, our agriculture sector, the marketing by, by the food industry, uh, there are a lot of forces uh, that, um, uh, whether they admit it or not, uh, make it harder. Make it harder to, uh, for uh, Americans out there uh, to make the healthy choice the easy choice. And um, you know, I, I don't think we want to demonize parts of our society, but, but we want to work with all sectors of our society to see how we can all push health forward. And I think that's in the best, best interest. Of, well, look, of, of you everyone. know, we 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 came down hard on tobacco yeah. because we were clear about its danger. Yeah. Um, but now obesity and food has Absolutely. overtaken tobacco as yeah. the leading cause of death. So, yeah. you know, I think we have to start to really think about that honestly. Yeah. And, and, like, and I think the industry does as well. I mean, for the sake of, of their own future and their bottom line, they need to understand uh, uh, which products of theirs are, are leading to ill health and, 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 um, and change their practice and culture as well. Um, um, so, uh, you know, and I think there are, there are some, um, you know, in the industry who've taken positive steps, yeah. uh, but, but I, and I think w when that happens, we need to applaud them, but I think you're absolutely right as a whole. I think it, it's important, um, uh, where it's not possible to see that, um, uh, voluntary steps. I think a government's got a role. It's got a really important role because, uh, you know, ultimately that's why we have governments to, yeah. um, you know, I always say sort of health and education. Those are the two most important things. You know, health provides the foundation. Education provides the acceleration, yeah. um, you know, as we pursue our goals in life. And and, and if, if anywhere where, where the government needs to lean forward, it's got to be in, in those types those of areas. I agree. I think that's great. Well, thank you for your work. Well, thank you. Thank you for working for us in the government for so long, trying to do the right thing. And now with the Bipartisan Policy Commission, which is, I think, one of the most important uh, organizations out there, bringing uh, parties from all sides together to solve difficult problems across government. And I think, you know, what I think is you need a big lobby arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need right, like a $100 right. million dollar lobbying yeah. fund so you yeah. can be out there telling yeah. these stories in ways that get lawmakers to pay attention. Yeah. So thank you so much for your work and for your book, Prevention First, Policymaking for Healthier America. It's a real contribution to our thinking about how do we do the right thing because 
if we keep going the way we're going, we're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. And uh, check out the book on Amazon where we get books and your bookstore, Barnes and Nobles. Um, and uh, check out the work of the Bipartisan Policy Center. I love their stuff. It's a little nerdy. I'm a little geeky, but I love that stuff. Uh, you might too. And uh, if you love this podcast, please share with your friends and family on social media. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership, Dr. Hyman. Thank you. For Thank you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Mark Hyman. So two quick things. Number one, thanks so much for listening to this week's podcast. It really means a lot to me. If you love the podcast, I'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and family. Second, I want to tell you about a brand new newsletter I started called Mark's Picks. Every week, I'm going to send out a list of a few things that I've been using to take my own health to the next level. This could be books, podcasts, research that I found, supplement recommendations, recipes, or even gadgets. I use a few of those. And if you'd like to get access to this free weekly list, all you have to do is visit drhyman.com forward slash picks. That's drhyman.com forward slash picks. I'll only email you once a week, I promise, and I'll never send you anything else besides my own recommendations. So just go to drhyman.com forward slash picks, that's P-I-C-K-S, to sign up free today. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their Find a Practitioner database. It's important that you have someone in your corner who's trained, who's a licensed healthcare practitioner, and can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.